Chapter 2 of Religion and Health. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Religion and Health by James Joseph Walsh. Chapter 2, Part 2. The differential diagnosis between merely nervous symptoms and the feelings of tiredness and incapacity which come from organic disease can often be made from the early morning symptoms. Nervous patients feel their worst in the very early morning. They often wonder how they will be able to get through the day without breaking down. After an hour or two they begin to feel somewhat better, though life still looks blue enough. On towards ten o'clock they think that the sun may shine for them again. By noon, especially if they have done something in the meantime, they feel much better, and after lunch, in the early afternoon, they begin to feel quite chipper. Toward evening they are usually persuaded that after all life may be worth living and by the time they are ready to go to bed, and unfortunately they are tempted to put off going to bed until rather late because they do feel so well, they are inclined to wonder how it is possible that they felt so depressed in the morning. The sufferer from organic disease, however, always feels best in the early morning and begins to get tired around noon. The evening is his time of least enjoyment, and he is quite ready to get to bed rather early. For the neurotic patient, waking to a sense of his troubles at once, Nothing is better than a prompt lifting up of his mind to God to offer him the new day that he has given, no matter how it may turn out, and a readiness to take things as they come, so that his will may be fulfilled. In nervous patients, one would almost have the feeling that their wills did not wake up nearly so soon as their memories, or even quite so soon as their intellects, such as they have. Their wills need to be aroused. For men, setting up exercises of various kinds are particularly valuable because the will has got to be used in doing them. Many a young soldier who, during the war, was waked up at the unearthly hour of five o'clock and had perforce to get out of bed, found himself full of pains and aches not only of body but of mind, and wondered how he could stand it. After ten minutes of setting up exercises, with the blood coursing through his muscles and deep breaths of outdoor air to oxygenate sluggish tissues, he felt like another man. The days seemed nothing to endure then. For a good many nervous women, the exercise of getting to church after prompt rising and dressing, and then the occupation of mind with deep, serious thoughts of prayer, will do very much what setting up exercises did for the young soldiers during the war. I have tried this so often on patients that I know whereof I speak, and I can think of nothing that does them more good than to have some such enlivening incident that satisfies their hearts and minds and starts them at once doing something that will help them throw off the fear thoughts so prone to crowd in. It is surprising often to learn what things are accomplished by people who find an unfailing resource for their powers, physical and mental, in prayer. I had the privilege of knowing a frail little woman whose life seemed to be one long prayer, so entirely was every action guided by what she felt God would like her to do at any particular time. And during very nearly sixty years she directed the destinies of a community of women who did more for the charities and education of an important state than any other single factor that I know. She organized hospitals, multiplied schools, built homes for the care of orphans, established an academy with excellent standards in the days when educational criteria were low and put a climax to her work by building a college for women in which hundreds of young women are now being educated in the best sense of the word. That is, not only having their minds stuffed with knowledge, but having their thinking powers aroused and, in Huxley's expressive phrase, 
having their passions trained to come to heel by a vigorous will, the servant of a tender conscience. I am sure that Huxley's further words might be used of the graduates, that they have learned to love all beauty, whether of nature or of art, to hate all vileness, and respect others as themselves. The little woman who did all this, frail little thing as she often seemed, would have said, I feel certain, that she derived the energy to do it all from prayer. Some years ago I wrote a sketch of another one of these women of prayer, a little Italian noblewoman who, touched by the condition of the poor Italians in America, only by America she meant both Americas, came over here to help them. She organized Columbus hospitals in New York, Chicago, Seattle, and Denver. She established literally hundreds of schools. She gathered around her a band of several thousand young women who devoted themselves to the accomplishment of anything and everything that would help the Italians in this country. They were not all Italians themselves, but they were won to the work by the ardent enthusiasm and the marvelously charming personality of this little woman. The United States would seem to be a field large enough for her zeal or for that of anyone, but she did not think so. So she went down to South America and organized to similar good purpose down there, having herself carried on one occasion across the Cordilleras in a hamper on muleback. It seemed almost impossible that anyone could have all the energy that she had and the initiative, and yet with it charming tact, winning ways, and the prudence that enabled her to find her path in some of the most difficult circumstances. She said over and over again that she owed her power to prayer. Many times when she was told that she must rest, she just prayed and went on. Sometimes the stories of these old-fashioned, prayerful women of our time will be told properly. They hid themselves from publicity as sedulously as most people seek it. I think it one of the most precious privileges of life to have known a score of such women, East and West. Some of them actually seemed to achieve the impossible, and even ventured to get up from sick beds to do what they felt they must do. Yet they pushed through successfully. Not infrequently they had to stand up to all sorts of hardships. Over and over again I have heard the story of pioneer work in the midst of privations that would surely seem to break down health. Yet many of these women lived to be well beyond seventy and sometimes even beyond eighty years of age. They were strengthened, consoled, held up in trial by prayer, and it enabled them to tap layers of energy in their physical beings which they themselves scarcely knew they possessed and concerning which other people were so dubious that they felt sure the workers would die young of exhausted vitality. Many wondered why some of them did not suffer from nervous prostration. Men and women of prayer seldom suffer from nervous prostration in the ordinary sense of the word, and what is called that in them is very often the manifestation of some organic ailment which has not been recognized. As to the power of prayer to enable people to stand suffering and pain, that is discussed in the chapters on these special subjects. Raising the mind and heart to God will do more to make even the extremity of pain bearable than anything else in the world. I have known a man under an engine, almost literally cooking to death from the steam that was escaping near him, in poignant agony, take on a quiet, peaceful look after a priest had crawled under the engine to give him the last rites of the church. And though his groans would still escape from him involuntarily, it was mainly words of prayer that came and he was evidently in a very different state of mind from that which governed him but a few moments before, when only the physical side of his case was occupying his mind. Many a soldier during the war found that when a dread came over him, and he feared that his courage might leave him, 
especially when men were falling thick and fast all around, a little prayer would lift him up and give him new courage. And when he was so tired that it seemed as though he could not go any farther, it would enable him to tap a new level of energy and get his second wind, as it were, and carry on. There are a great many people nowadays, and unfortunately they are ever so much more frequent among the educated classes than among those who have not had the benefit of an education, who seem to think that prayer is a confession of weakness. When a man or woman has recourse to prayer, they would be inclined to say that it's because he or she hasn't the strength of character and personality that enables them to stand up under the trials of life and to face difficulties valiantly and hopefully. Impressions like this have been rather fostered among the modern intellectual classes who, it must be recalled, are not always intelligent. We saw in the first chapter that while there is a very prevalent impression that somehow science is opposed to religion, and that scientists find it utterly impossible to accept religious beliefs seriously, and indeed can only pity those who continue to cherish such outworn superstitions, practically all the greatest scientists of modern times have been deep believers. What is true with regard to scientists and belief in religion is true also with regard to the strongest characters of the world and prayer. The greatest moral force of the war, the man who stood, as Horace long ago said, the perfect man, totus teres atque rotundus, should stand unmoved, even though the world is falling in pieces around him, was Cardinal Mercier. When they asked him at the luncheon given to him in New York by some two thousand of our most prominent commercial representatives how he, a bishop, brought up in the peace and quiet of a university, should stand unmoved in the presence of the greatest military power on earth and insist on the rights of his country and his people. His very simple reply was, as a bishop, there was nothing else that occurred to me for the moment to do. Some of Cardinal Mercier's favorite maxims show how deeply he feels whence comes his strength. He said, for instance, that the ideal of life is a clear sense of duty. His favorite quotation is from St. Teresa, that well-known expression, whenever conscience commands anything, there is only one thing to fear, and that is fear. His maxim for daily life was, the whole duty of man consists in doing God's will today. I care to have no vain regrets with regard to the past, and no idle dreams as to the future, but I shall be quite satisfied if God gives me his grace to accomplish his holy will today. It is easy to see from these that the Cardinal feels his utter dependence on a higher power, and the necessity for keeping as closely in touch with that higher power by prayer as possible. There is no doubt at all about his supreme strength of character and his placid yet unbending resolution to accomplish what he sees as duty. There is no doubt also that he feels that he draws his strength to accomplish whatever he can from prayer. His daily recourse to it, far from being a sign of weakness in any sense, simply represents the man's own feeling of his inadequacy to accomplish what his conscience dictates unless he is strengthened from on high. Perhaps it is to be expected that a churchman would find his strength in prayer, but it must not be forgotten that the greatest military leader of this war, who, because of the immense armies that he had to lead, must be considered one of the greatest military geniuses of all time, confesses also that the source of whatever power he had came from prayer. Over and over again, during the time while he was commander-in-chief of the Allied armies, Marshal Foch was discovered at prayer in some quiet chapel, manifestly absorbed in communion with God. When congratulated on what he had accomplished, he said at once, Do not thank me. 
but thank the author of all good to whom the victory is due. He was often known to ask for prayers, and when on the morning of the first battle of the Marne he met the chaplain of one of his regiments, he said to him, Pray for us, Father. We advance from here or die here today. There is a story that comes from his own headquarters that when sometimes he was thought to be asleep, he was found at prayer. When his first decision as commander-in-chief of the Allied armies had to be made, and he had to determine whether Amiens should be surrendered to the enemy, and a defense made on lines behind the city, both Haig, in immediate command of the British forces, as well as Pétain, the French commander, are said to have advised retirement. Foch listened patiently to their reasons, and then asked for twenty minutes by himself before making his decision, declaring that he would give it in that time. He spent those minutes walking up and down the garden in the slight rain that was falling, very much in the concentrated manner that he was known to assume when praying. At the end of twenty minutes he declared that Amman was to be held at all cost, and it was. This was the first great step in the breaking of the enemy morale. When three months later, on the 18th of July, after the Germans had tried for three days to come through his lines and had practically succeeded and then, lacking in men and munitions, had to stop, Marshal Foch launched his counteroffensive, which represented the beginning of the end of the war. It was easy to understand the strain through which he had just passed and the immensity of the responsibility of the decision that he had to make. After the orders for the counteroffensive had been sent out, he said, "'Now I must rest.' As can readily be imagined, he had slept but little on any of the three preceding nights. Half an hour after he retired, there came a dispatch, which the high staff decided must be communicated to the general-in-chief. They hesitated for some time to wake him, but there was nothing else for it. His adjunct found him on his knees. The practice of prayer, then, instead of being an index of weakness of character, is, on the contrary, a note that is found exemplified in a great many men who are distinguished for their strength of character. It is the strong man, above all, who knows his own weakness, and realizes how incapable he is of doing very great things of himself. It is the conceited man, who is confident that he can accomplish anything that he wants out of his own strength, and often fails. Great generals, almost as a rule, have been men who turned aside from the immense calls made upon them by their military responsibilities, to gain consolation and strength from the Most High. It is surprising often to find how devoutly they turn to the higher power in their trials. Field Marshal Lord Wolseley carried a copy of Thomas a Kempis' Imitation of Christ with him always, and read in it every day. When they found Chinese Gordon dead at Khartoum, there was a little copy of Newman's Dream of Gerontius in which he had been reading and making some annotations during the days before the end. For him, too, the imitation of Christ was a favorite reading, as it was for Stanley the Explorer, and many another thoroughly practical, intensely brave, and strong man whom the world has come to appreciate for his strength of character. In our time there has been noted an extreme lack of delicacy and a diminution of that reticence which characterized human beings at their best. There has been a pouring out of the story of their woes and ills by men and women seeking sympathy, which not only does them no good, but which tends to break down their own character. It was Nietzsche who said in one of those striking aphorisms of his, Sympathy only makes us feel bad, and the person for whom we sympathize feel worse than before. In an older time, when there was more faith and the practice of prayer was commoner, the habit of prayer replaced this pouring out of the heart to others. People let God know about it, and in that way brought themselves into the mental attitude that somehow, somewhere, all was well, 
for god's in his world and all is right with it this proved an antidote to that sympathy-seeking self-pity which is not only so fatal to character development but which actually makes the trials and sufferings of life harder to bear than they would otherwise be and will sometimes lift the little discomforts that are almost inevitably associated with living up to the plane of superconsciousness on which they seem to be torments prayer is often its own reward though any one who practices it in reality knows that there are other and much higher effects than this psychological influence which can of itself however neutralize many of the lesser disturbances of life that may be so readily exaggerated to many people in our time prayer seems a useless exercise except in so far as the state of mind which it engenders reacts upon the individual to console and strengthen him in trials and to hearten him for the difficulties that lie ahead even if it had no other effect than this prayer would still be a very valuable factor for health in the midst of the difficulties and above all the dreads of humanity which are so likely to disturb the proper functioning of organic life if this were all that it meant however prayer would not be a religious but a psychotherapeutic exercise as a matter of belief however prayer is much more than this and to the mind of the believer at least leads to help from on high that may prove of immense consequence in the development of individual life many people feel that it would be idle to think that prayer can alter the ordinary course of natural events and that these are rigidly connected with the causal elements which lead up to them and cannot be modified once the chain of causes has been set to work it is curiously interesting to realize that not a few of those who urge this inevitability of causation are just those who refuse to acknowledge the principle of causation as necessarily leading to the demonstration that there must be a first cause as suggested by sir bertram windell president of university college cork in his volume the church in science which has recently been awarded one of the bridgewater prizes in england it is not difficult to realize that the world is by no means so rigidly predetermined as many enthusiastic votaries of science would have us believe he adds there is room for free play chance has a real objective significance namely the intercrossing of independent causal chains and is not a mere cloak for ignorance not alone is a large part of natural occurrences within our own control but there is opportunity for god's special direction of events without any contravention of the laws of science we cannot see far ahead for all we know a small change of present plans may result in far-reaching future consequences and many present realities were once frail possibilities hanging on slender causal threads did not england's present mineral wealth and insular position originate in some chance-formed heterogeneity in a nebula all these life histories of countries and individuals stand spread out to god's eternal gaze at each stage he sees the possibilities foreclosed or initiated he influences development by the primal distribution in the past and by direction and inspiration in the present end of chapter 2 recording by olivia